podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. It is the weekend. Coming up, we're talking to John T. Mark about the African, uh, the African Nations Championship. This needs explaining, and that's why we've got John T. on to explain it. It is not the same as the African Cup of Nations, and it's why Mo Salah and Sadio Mane aren't going away on international duty for this international break and the next one. That is to come. Also uh, to come, we've got Andy Heaton speaking to Peter Carney about soccer in the city. Uh, but in the studio, we've got Kiva O'Neill, we've got Damien Cavana, and we've got Adam Smith to talk about, well, we're going to start off talking about this team of the year thing but also the UEFA technical document that came out that talked about how they felt Liverpool won the Champions League the technical report is done by a whole host of managers David Moyes worked on it Roberto Martinez worked on it but it's not just Evertonians they invite invite other people as well to get stuck in Uh, and it's a big long look as to why Liverpool won the thing but the first thing you can say about one of the reasons why Liverpool won the thing although it goes it's a team game but it's an individual game it's a team game it's an individual game Damien seven of our lads have now been shortlisted for the team of the year individual achievements within a team context it's all about the team context with Jürgen isn't it and he's um, such a noble coach and you can he, he, his critics seem to think that he says things for effect and he tries it that way but I think he genuinely just thinks about the team concept and if he maximises the team and the team ethic and brings everyone together then he'll get the best out of them and when you get the best out of them they start to shine and then they start to get individual recognition and that has um, probably been highlighted in, in a performance for example against PSG last year who might have had more notable world superstars before the game starts but the score flattered them and we, we bossed them off the pitch. Jürgen is getting everything out of uh, some very, very good players and some really excellent players. No surprise to me that now, this, you know, you win the big cup, you're going to start getting the rewards and the recognition. And that's what's happening. Seven of them, uh, Adam. I think the interesting thing is the is, is none of Liverpool's midfielders, which is hysterical that we've managed to pull together what we pulled together and none of the midfielders are getting the individual individual recognition, but maybe they are the ones who most devote themselves to the team ethic. The goalkeeper, three of the regular back four in Alexander-Arnold, obviously Virgil van Dijk, Andy Robertson, and the front three, all nominated. Doesn't mean they'll end up in it for the team of the year. Uh, the lack of midfielders is hysterical, but it may well be the very essence of Jürgen's team-based approach. I think it probably reflects what a lot of people think about the Liverpool team in that, you know, we rem- I remember last year when we were playing games against the likes of PSG where people were referring to the Brexit midfield and it, it, the way in which it's so easily brushed under the carpet as if they just don't do anything, as if, they, you know, they're, they're useless. The way some people talk about Jordan Henderson, the way some people say Jeannie Wijnaldum goes missing in games, all that sort of thing. It, it's. It, I think it's reflective of an idea that the, the 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 Liverpool midfield is somehow just there to fill up the numbers, when that's very much not how Jurgen Klopp uses them, and they have very specific jobs. That and that it's all the unsexy stuff is what they get to do. You know, Van Dijk gets to jump up and and head the ball away, and uh, you know Alexander Arnold gets to put the cross in, and uh, and so does Robertson. And uh, then obviously the forwards get to do what they do and look electric, whereas the midfield are doing all of the little bits that that facilitate that. They're like they're the facilitators rather than the engine room. I think very much. Yeah, I mean. It'll evolve this, won't it? And this is what happens. I can think, you know, teams in the past and players, um, you know, who don't get recognition and, and it, because the consistency over time, then it, it, it evolves that way. But you're quite right. Obviously, of course, if a goalie's making boss saves, if a centre-half's dominating, if you've got full-backs who are contributing more assists than most top-class number 10s in other teams, if you've got a, you know, a front three which is un- unselfish and productive in, in equal measure, then they're going to hit the headli- you know, the headlines. The midfield there then is very workman like and, and Neil's explained it well in the past when he said you're asking three lads to do the work of four mm. and and the, and the unselfish nature of that um, you know of he's saying facilitating you know they're, they're the press that leads to the press aren't they you know yeah. if you look at the goal that we got um, against Burnley you know Bobby nicks it but Bobby nicks it on the back of a bit of a press before that doesn't it you know so Bobby gets the headlines but it's all part of the same shape and the same thing and I think if Liverpool continue to play in this way I think they'll start to get the recognition I mean I've said before that. And this, this was about a year or two ago. How many of our midfielders would get into a, a midfield team of our rivals? And at the time, a year or two ago, probably not many. And now, when you look at the way Fabinho's growing and you know and, and things like that, um, it's starting to become obvious to everybody. I think one of the other things about these players, and maybe we sometimes put values on them from the outside, Kiva, but 
I don't think Jordan Henderson, James Milner, or Jeannie Wijnaldum care. They've won the medal. They've got the medal from the from the big day. And that is, you know, as far as they're concerned, you get the impression that they'll be saying, you know, Fabinho as well, well, I'm doing my job. If, if, if these other footballers are getting this recognition, I'm doing my job. It does seem like that's the sort of thing that's been very much instilled in them from, from the manager, but also which is present within them in any case. Yeah, well, Jürgen Klopp summed it up quite well when Van Dijk won the Player of the Year award last week and he said you know we just sent the big man over to get it this is a team award it's for this team who won the Champions League and I feel like that kind of sums this up although it is a massive or maybe just a small travesty that I don't want to single anyone out but a player like Paul Pogba can be listed and Fabinho isn't I just think what's going on there but obviously the versatility of our fullbacks and stuff does take maybe the shine away. And like you've said, these are players who don't really need the recognition because, you know, we have we have got the medals and going forward, they just seem very much like, you know, they go home and just be with the families. They're not really too fussed on them kind of things. And I, I think as well, if you look, if Barcelona would have won this, their midfield would have all been listed Anyone else but Liverpool who wins the Champions League this year, like we did, I think all their midfield players are listed because if you look in the past, like Xavi and Iesta, they're never not getting in this. So it is bizarre to think, you know, but they can't, I mean, seven players. Yeah, can't argue you with can't, it. You can't put us all in, but, you know. It shows the level, I think, though, Keith, that that's now where this Liverpool side is. And, and this is where you get to see how it is different. And we're going to go on to talk about the the UEFA uh, technical report. But it's part of how you see how it is different from say 2005 or even 2007 that you know that was very much a tale of certain individuals whereas now part of the reason why the seven in there is that it's an acceptance uh, from the football hierarchy that Liverpool do have one of the best teams in Europe if not the one of the top two mm. best teams in Europe that's now what this is this is what this says yeah definitely and it says we've got some of the best players in them positions like Andy Robertson is the best left back in the world he's the first Scotsman to ever have been named in this. And the list has been going for 15 years. It's the first time players like Buffon have not been in it. Obviously, Alisson now comes into it. You know, our players are taking on this mantle. Buffon was named 15 times in this. And Alisson, why can't he go on, you know, to be the next 10 years to be in this team? And we've got players like that who are going to keep on knocking at this door and being, you know, there's 55 players on the list and there's seven Liverpool players and the arguably should be more. So, you know, we're going to go again next season. And, you know, last season, I think there was only Salah and Mane on the list. So, you know, we've made that progression. So what does it mean for next year? Because we're only getting better. Hmm. There's, uh, Adam, the technical report is, is fascinating in that it does, it very much singles Liverpool out in a way that even the previous years hadn't in the same way, even though Liverpool got to the final. And we're arguably the most exciting side the previous year. It is a report that they write, they write to it every single year. I am fascinated by it. It does remind you that football is this, is there's still aspects of football that is meant to be about sharing the data, sharing the knowledge, collective improvement. That's what this report is actually meant to reflect. And within there, the emphasizing things like, for instance, Liverpool's set-piece excellence is one of the things they were very much looking to do within this report to, 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 to put into context how Liverpool won the competition rather than just have the idea of, oh, well, we all played some matches and you can all go and watch the tapes. Yeah, and I think that that, that kind of plays into what Jurgen Klopp does as well, isn't it? You know, like, I, I remember it was last it was it last season or the season before and people were going mad because Klopp had done something, he'd said something in an interview. I would tell you what it was, he'd done Monday Night Football, I think it was, something like that, I remember? And people were going mental, going, oh, we shouldn't give our secrets away and blah, blah, blah. And then <laughs> well, now... Those days have gone, haven't <laughs> Well, the, like, the players just stand there and go, yeah, this is what happened in that game that you've just watched there. <laughs> I think, yeah. you know, so it's sort of very a very Jurgen Klopp approach to kind of be like, yeah, well, you know, it's fine, you know, but everyone knows what they're going to do anyway. Knowing what they're going to do isn't the problem; it's stopping them. That's the problem. Yeah, and you know, the the likes of set pieces, you know, all right, the one that that diddled Barcelona was obviously incredible for for any number of reasons, but. The, 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 we go into games now in, in where in the past we were terrified about set pieces that for the opposition when they got them, but also when we got them, you'd be like, oh, well, I'll go and put the kettle on them because nothing's come from this corner. But now you, you, you get it and you think, well, where's where's Van Dijk? Where's Matip? Where's the, you know, where's the ball going? What are they doing? They're doing something clever here. What's going on? And you've already seen it a couple of times this season as well with something a little bit different, like a little bit more inventive, Salah on the edge of the box, things like that, just trying to put doubt into the opposition's mind, isn't it? 
bit of what what's going on. So it's it's no wonder that they've they've pointed out that we've become quite good at them. Uh, second uh, second highest uh, number of headed goals of any team uh, within there as well. Uh, there was also the ed- shots on the edge of the box from clearances. Salah. The fifth with the highest because he had, he had five of them from the edge of the box, the most of any in the competition. Part of this, Damien, you know, Rob Gutman pointed it out to me when I was chatting to him about this this week. The Origi goal in the final comes from a breakdown of a set piece, and it's yeah. what our Liverpool deal, like Liverpool's positioning around the box. It's a really, th- it's a thing to think. Surely you just stand up around the box a bit and you compete. But Liverpool, you get the impression they hone that down to a fine art. Oh, how, Jeff, oh, yeah. how to keep it alive in the box. Think about where Origi goes. That yeah. looks to me like a pre-planned manoeuvre yeah. when he pulls out to that side. So Matt yeah. knows instinctively there should be someone there. Someone's yeah. meant to be there. Yeah, Do you know what yeah. I mean? This isn't this isn't done by accident. Oh, it's fine detail. I mean, Jürgen being such a motivator and... Um, you know, you can get lost in that a little bit, can't you? And he just sort of goes in, gives them all a hug, gets good players, makes them fit, and says, go out, boys, charge. And it can feel like that sometimes. If you think back to the, the roads Kiev, it did feel like that sometimes, but that would certainly mask someone who's good enough to get, what, a team into three big cup finals now and win the, the um, Bundesliga against the uh, the might of um, Bayern. Yeah, I agree with you about the... Um, the, the analysis of where's the ball going to bounce. Basically, it's the old school saying of box them in. Yeah. But it's not, you know, so by boxing them in doesn't mean you just stand 10 lads next to their 10 lads because they can just put the ball behind you. But yeah, you know, if you keep presenting yourself in the right positions where statistically it might go or it might fall or it might drop. You know, when people say, you know, they look at videos and they have a day looking at analysis and whatever, have you can't imagine just to all go in the canteen, watch your game, say, how do you get on, lads? It's really fine. He's, this is world-class sport. You know, at the highest level, Liverpool had to look at last season um, of being definitely the most exciting team in Europe, coming so close to winning the big cup, and then had some issues to address goalkeeper and a bit more solidity, and then you know going on to being able to you know win ugly in the way that uh, or win not dirty because I would that wouldn't reflect how Madrid did it, but you know really be tactically aware and have some nous about it, and certainly involvement of what happened in the last twelve months meant that we got over the line. It's um, I, I'm not worried about the secrets getting given away because, like I say, all the data's out there, isn't it? Everyone's, I think the video, on. really quick, just to say it's not by chance. When we played a team in the Marbella training camp, I can't even think who it was, and the Mane went in the penalty, we'd done the exact same thing, and the video like got released, and oh, Liverpool yeah. yep. straight from the kickoff had done that. So people thinking, you know, like Mane's the most freestyle-looking player ever, but these are, you know, the, the told and trained on what to do. Well, this is part of the... The other thing that's really interesting is that this report discusses Liverpool being more balanced and more controlled than the year before, but then it points out that the competition average from gaining possession to scoring is 12.5 seconds. Barcelona is 16.3 seconds. Tottenham, 14.95 seconds. Liverpool, 7.81. So that idea that they're drilled in this key for the speed with which they get it back, and whilst they weren't playing like that all the time, when Liverpool were picking the moments and deciding that they were going to overload sides and overwhelm sides, that's what they were doing, they were, and they were scoring less than eight seconds after winning the ball back. That's just, like, I'm speechless off that, because, like... Twice as quick as Barcelona's average. Which obviously means that we deserve to obviously come back and get into the final. But, you know, you you look at that report and you're just thinking, I think Mane had a chance every 1.5 minutes or something. And it's just like, like, how attacking are we? Like, it doesn't feel like that when you're watching it. But obviously, over the course of the, the Champions League season, this is happening. And obviously, like we're saying, it's not by chance, but there is a little bit of luck involved as well. I think Origi had three shots and they were all on target, which was in the report, which is, you know, just standard Origi. Um, and yeah, I just think, you know, them fine little margins and looking at how actually ruthless Liverpool are, because you would just think, you know, we sort of, you know, we got beat 3-0 and then obviously that famous comeback. But when you look at that and we're half... Half the speed Half on average. Half the speed yeah. of Barcelona, then, you know, just what a team. It's mm. it's fa- it's fascinating all this, and this is, you know, all it's with the reports worth reading. You can download them as a PDF uh, if you want to have a little look through. Um, Adam, again in there as well as the pace of Liverpool, the number of sprints that's that um, the number of sprints that Sadio Mane does, that James Milner covers uh, covers at the hun- um, covers an unbelievable distance. He averages running 135 meters a minute um, across the course of games. He's 33 years old. For God's sake, I'm hiding behind being 38 as to why I haven't got on my exercise <laughs> bike. There is, you know, going across the board here that. It, it, these numbers and these reports, they emphasise, again, Liverpool's excellence. They didn't get to this final by a fluke. It's two years on the bounce. We are talking about possibly the best team in Europe. Without question, yeah. I think 
the thing is, Manchester City are obviously an incredible football team. There's no, you can't take that away from them. You, you don't do what they're doing. You don't get, you know, what, 198 points over two seasons without being a very, very good football team. But I also don't think it's a massive coincidence that, that they haven't done particularly well in Europe. And I think it's largely because they aren't used to playing the sort of standard of teams that you get in Europe, you know, week in, week out in the Premier League. It's a little bit like the PSG thing. And Liverpool now between the um, the Europa League run where we played difficult teams and then the Champions League run last season, you know, two seasons ago, where we obviously played very good teams. And then we've got this one. Liverpool have got that into the system of how you play against these teams and what you do. And Jurgen Klopp knows what he's doing. So I think we're we're an unbelievably good football team. And it, it's not just it's not just when you say things like, you know, the speed of them. It's not just the speed, but it's the intelligence of the speed. That they're moving quickly, but they're doing intelligent things with it. Milner is, you know, running <laughs> hell of a distance all the time every single game but he's doing it for a reason it's not just headless chicken running yeah. around and it's it's they're the differences between I think you know other managers who maybe say oh I need fast lads or I need you know I need you to run more I think it was there was a big thing made wasn't there after I think maybe Solskjaer had gone in and they ran that his team yeah. ran like 10 kilometers more than they had the match before or whatever and you think well yeah but that's irrelevant because they, what are they doing why are they running you know it's not just running and that's the difference between Klopp and other managers is there's a reason behind it all and one of the things that I'll, uh, that, that that gets mentioned there by Adam and which you sort of pointed out before when you mentioned Madrid Damien is that the report also points out that Liverpool's flexibility in tactical approach and that maybe is something where we very much know and that this isn't to say they only play one way because that isn't true or fair but you very much know what a Pep Guardiola side looks like Yeah. and up until last season you'd have said you had a really good sense of what a Jurgen Klopp side looks like but it is fair to say Liverpool last season they do play different systems mm-hmm. change system during the game they do it in the final they change formation in the final yeah. it's not saying that there's only one way of playing for City and Liverpool or this remarkably flexible thing but there is maybe a little bit of truth in what, what Adam's saying there about Liverpool being more all used to adapting and that's that's part of what suited them so well in the competition last season yeah you do get a feeling don't you I mean I'm honestly unfortunately you get a feeling at 38 league games it's difficult to get past Man City's style and depth of squad and then you talk about them you know playing against anybody at a high level or a low level and you think that they can do that to anybody and then you think about you know other European teams of a high quality well they've proved that they can you know get at Man City whereas with this team what Jürgen's assembled and um, I might add the nature of the home crowd, which just, you know, gives them an extra half a percent. Um, it just I think we're more suited to winning the European Cup than Man City are. And that's a hell of a statement, given how good Man City are. But I think that that's the level that Liverpool are at. This team is as good as any Liverpool team I've ever seen. Excellent stuff. Thank you very much to Kiva, to Damien and to Adam. They'll be back later on in the show to have a chat about this season uh, so far and how we feel we're up to. Uh, we've also got to come. Uh, we've got uh, John T. Mark talking about the African, uh, the African Nations Championship rather than the African Cup of Nations. We go into more detail on that coming up. Andy Heaton with Peter Carney talking about soccer in the city. This is Andy Heaton. I'm delighted to be joined for this segment by uh, Peter Carney, a lifelong copite, shall we say, Peter? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'd always wanted to be a copite, and I am a copite. Well, you know, I've worse... I've been a copite. Much worse things to be. Much worse <laughs> things to be. Uh, I've been trying to get Peter into, into this show for, God knows how long now. I mean, we, we go back a long, long yeah, time yeah. as a... Uh, it's kind of someone I've always looked up to and looked, looked forward to getting in on the show. And we finally got an excuse to get you yeah, in. Yeah, um, yeah. And we're going to talk of all, all things about your Liverpool history and stuff like that. But in yeah. the main, uh, your venture there, soccer in the city. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, I mean, if you wanted to, if you want to, in your own words, describe well, the, what it is. Soccer in the city is a tour of Liverpool in a minibus that seeks to make a connection between the people, the game and the city. Um, what, what, what would you expect on the... So you- well, you'd expect a tour that points out buildings of significance where football sits in the history of the city, you know, the uh, the history of the clubs, where the two clubs come from, how they come about, um, and, and some of the things that have gone on down the years, you know, the, the winning trophies and things like that, you know, going to um, things like that, yeah. We'll come back to that later in the show. Yeah, but what, um, I, I want to get you, because you've, you've got a, a fascinating history... Well, if not, why you might not be familiar with the name of Peter Carney, you'll certainly be familiar with his flags, uh, both home banners. and away, yeah. and flags and banners. Um, 
I mean, do you, do you want to give us a, 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 a short history of... Well, the first one I made was literally a bed sheet and it had on an LFC, it's done it with a ruler, marked it out with a ruler and a pencil and the, the back of the pencil. How far back are we going here? Well, in 1974, they replayed with Leicester, uh, Villa Park. I'd been at the first game in Old Trafford, they drew nil-nil. Um, and, yeah, we shut out the back with the radio on and made a banner with the uh, brick paint. Uh, painted it on a bed sheet in like a maroonish colour, um, and and uh, I actually made two that day. I made a banner and a mural on the floor because the paint seeped right through the cloth <laughs> and left LFC on the floor. I was going afterwards. Yeah, I, I was going to say from personal experience. I think that's kind of everyone's uh, awakening. Yeah, we've all, I still do it now. I still yeah. get paint on the you know on the kitchen table. You know, uh, no matter how much paper I put underneath it. You know, to, yeah. to don't, don't do it on your mum's brand new carpet. <laughs> That's right, yeah, yeah. And don't use brick paint. <laughs> well, exactly. Um, so, yeah, no, so go and carry your first one. Yeah, so that was the first one, 74. Uh, we we had a Union Jack for the Wolves game, 76. I went to Bruce, 76. Yeah, swapped that on the way back for a, um, for a bottle of vodka. <laughs> and it, I mean, it's funny you say the Union Jack now because there's kind of like a, a, an exceptionalism thing around it. But back then, it was it was common. I look yeah, at, you I, know what? It's funny because you know what? I, I wasn't sure whether you were going to do this in video, and, um, uh, and so I was sort of shifting through which t-shirts. And when I had a Real Betis t-shirt on last night, I thought, no, I need to wear red. It might be on the thing. And, and uh, the red one I had was a um, and Carragher's bar one uh, done in the style of Elvis's record studio. I thought, oh, that'd be good, no. And, uh, and then thought, no, I don't, I don't want to put that one on. That. I, I, I need something different. You know, I wore that for other things. like. And uh, and I pulled a T-shirt out that has the flags on, says underneath the supporters all over the world. The flag on the left is the Canadian flag and the flag on the right is the Union Jack. And people have said to me, you know, that's a cracker, uh, scar- cracker scarf. That. I have scarves with that, you know, the pinstripe scarves. And um, and this fellow said to me, he said, you know what? He said, it's a cracker scarf that he said, but... I'd never take to having the Union Jack on my scarf, you know what I mean? I said, yeah, well, fair enough. I wouldn't, you know, go out of my way to do it. But in 76, I don't know where this flag come from, but it was enormous. It must have come off some boat somewhere. Well, I mean, I, 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 mean? I, I remember seeing photographs of, um, well, I don't remember, I've got them, photographs of Paris. Eighty one, uh, in eighty one, yeah. and um, yeah. they're all over the place. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it was just a matter of flying a flag. Then I think yeah. I had Liverpool written across the middle. I mean, there was a few of us that were grateful for it because it was that big. They stood on the wall of the school outside uh, Molyneux and uh, and jumped across, hung onto the flag, and then got pulled up the wall to get on the ground. You know what yeah. I mean? So, so it served the purpose, but it was that big. It was a nuisance. So I swapped it on the way back for a bottle of vodka. And uh, the next one was was Paris eighty one. I done a, a live bird on a, like a silk cloth. I was working in uh, Saint Helens at a place called Play Resource Centre. It was like an art resource for play schemes. And uh, yeah, I made this flag. It said Allez La Rouge. Uh, but the pole that I got was a metal pole. It was never going to go the match. You know what I mean? This eight foot metal pole. Um, but the the, the, the flag did. I don't know what's become of it. Like yeah, but that was eighty one. Um, and then eighty four. I was genuinely inspired by the uh, the Roma overhead uh, waivers. Um, you know, they covered like a third of the end. You know, they were fantastic. You know, well they thought they had it once, didn't they? You know what I mean? Little did they know. Yeah, so that, that was 84. And then um, uh, I wasn't really going to match for the next few years because I was playing. I moved back to Liverpool the weekends before we went to Rome and won the Cup. Um, I'd lived in Berkshire for three years. Yeah, so that was that, that was 84. That was a genuine inspiration. Italian football at the time was an inspiration. You know, you used to, they, they were just beginning to get coverage of their games regularly on uh, Channel 4 then, you know, so that that, that was, uh, that was like the, you know, the flavour. And then we we fast forward a couple of years, because I, 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 we'll, we'll lead into it, but you are responsible for two of the most famous banners slash flags at Anfield. Um, first one, need very little introduction, uh, but maybe a lot of people, a lot of people might, might not understand the history of it and how it came about, one thing and the other. It's um, it's the memorial flag. Mm. Um, the memorial banner, yeah. The memorial banner. Do you want to... Yeah, I made the memorial banner, the Hillsborough memorial banner, the week after the disaster. I had the cloth. The cloth had come from uh, uh, the 
shop opposite the Adelphi, John Lewis's, was it? Was it Lewis's? It used to be called Lewis's, Dickie Lewis. And uh, this material was originally used as window dressing and then it was donated to the play scheme organisation, Merseyside Play Action Council, for recycling for use on play schemes or in community centres. And of course, i seen these big, broad yellow and red stripes and instantly thought of Rome. And uh, anyway, they gave me three pieces and I had them in the house um, and started working on doing a, a banner with them that would celebrate the club centenary in 1992. And I was literally working out the scale, you know, how big do these pieces of cloth need to be and all that, like. And um, yeah, but then uh, Hillsborough happened and I went to the ground the following day. My mate lived seven doors down from the Shankly Gate, Fred Brown. He was an artist. So I went there for a cup of tea. The gates weren't even open then. And um, and in the conversation, I said to him, Fred, we need to make a banner. So he was at a, he was doing a thing like a, a scholarship in Centre for Arts Development Training. And he went in there the following day and said, listen, you know, we need some space to make a banner. So we got a spare floor of what would be office, you know, was empty office space in Peter House on, I think it's Crosshall Street by Exchange Station, and spent three days making this banner. Me, John Fay, Tracy Dyne, Fred Brown, um, and a couple of other people. Uh, and on the Friday, we took it to the grounds, and it was displayed at the grounds on the wall at the Anfield Road end, that was the exit, the corner with the Kemlin Road, that was the exit from the Anfield Road end. And when we put it on, it, it, you know, it, it was like it was made to fit. It was within inches of being right. Yeah. Um, so then we went back for it on the Monday and, um, and, and picked it up again. It was always meant to be, you know, uh, uh, recovered, if you like. Um, the, you know, the thing was, I lived, so the banner lived. That's the way. Um, that's the way I felt at the time. So we kept it, and then of course six weeks later we come to play Arsenal to win the double. So I got another piece of cloth out and uh, painted a great big FA Cup and a league trophy either side of a live bird, and that became the second half of the Hillsborough Memorial banner. It was attached to the bottom, which made the banner uh, twenty foot high and twenty four foot wide. Um, of course, we got beat, so, um, you know, the glory after the death wasn't to be. And I put that piece on the back of the memorial banner, always intending to record what Liverpool won since on the back. Um, and never did. And that's where I'm up to with it. And 20 years later, I made the New Hillsborough Memorial Banner. I was going to say, because there's a second... Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, there's, there's actually three original banners. There are three pieces of cloth, and uh, and they're all going to an exhibition in Pendle. Uh, I'm actually going to drop them off in Burnley tomorrow at the match um, to be displayed in a textile exhibition that's going on up in, uh, in Pendle in October. So there's the Memorial Banner, which is two-sided, you know... Um, the, 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 the death and the glory, if you like. And there's also what's known as the baby banner, and that's probably most familiar uh, to people. People, you know, may know that a bit better who went in the Hillsborough Justice campaign shop because it was yeah. displayed on the end of the counter there. So if you walked in the shop, especially in uh, when they moved to being across from the Albert, you know, you walk in that shop and the first thing you see, was the it was known as the baby banner. Um, it still is known as the Baby Banner. Um, yeah, it's a metre by a metre. That went to the original appeal for the inquests. And there's a great picture of uh, Teresa Glover and some of the other mothers who were involved, that Anne Williams and Joan Tootle, outside the appeal court. With I think Sheila Coleman's actually on the picture. Anyway, it's a group of women outside the uh, appeal court, and it's a belter of a picture, yeah. So that's the baby banner. And then 20 years later, I made the new Hillsborough Memorial banner. So where I'm up to is I'm now working on the design for the, the back of that, because the back of that is going to be the European Cup one side and the Premier League trophy the other side. You know, you know my idea of what the Premier League trophy would be, um, yeah, and everything that we've won since Hillsborough. Um, I mean, without without going to go too much into it, how do you how how do you feel when you see like you because you, you must see it all the time in the, in the photographs of the cop of mm. the grounds, and then you see it, and it's kind of. Not so. I mean, you'd ne you never celebrate what happened, but it, it, it's like a moment in time that's part of our hist, like our yeah, history yeah, as a culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 
Yeah. You know, that's come from... You've, you've got something that's so beautiful and means so much that's come mm. from something so terrible. You know, how, how's that? That feels good to me because I feel like where I'm up to with the, the new banner is that um, it, it, it was meant to touch all the senses. The the overriding sense with the Hillsborough Memorial banners is that they are for touching. The original was designed to be held overhead still um, by supporters on the cops. So it was a touching experience. And that's quite deliberate because of the literally touching experience at the other extreme of being in the Leppens Lane end. So... That means a lot to me. Um, I like to think that there's um, there's about 96 people under the banner when it's displayed like that. That's the best way that it's displayed, you know. Um, it's not. You work out the square footage, it's probably about 50 or 60 people that's under it when it when it's displayed like that. Now, with the new banner, the new banner's a little bit different because it's, it, it's meant to be touched from the front. So... All the uh, different aspects of it, the trophies, the lettering, the piping around, the trophies, the back cloth, uh, have all been deliberately chosen uh, for the sense of touch that it, you know, it, it irritates the word Hillsborough at the bottom. Originally had all notching and stuff like that, but from folding and, and things like that, them knots have gone. It's not as rough as it was meant to be. So the idea is that it can be read by a blind man. You know, so you don't have to see yeah. it to uh, to to read it. So yeah, that that's where I, you know that's where that's up to. And, and, and what I'd like to do next is is some kind of what what's them little square things you have where you put your phone to it and it Q codes or something like that. Some kind of Q codes in the, the banner so that you can point your phone at it and 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 learn the story of the people who were killed. Blimey. Yeah, well, you know, it's... it's no, no, you know, no, that's, it's... No, that's it's, where no, I'm up to with it. No, get it. I've no, literally I've got a drawing of the back ready. I was ready to go for it in May. It would never have been finished in May. I've got a clear idea about how it's going to, you know... Well, I've actually got a scale drawing, you know, uh, two foot by six foot, same as the um, uh, original drawing for the new memorial banner, the scale drawing. I've just never I've just never thought about it like that piece of yeah, and it. And yeah. it's, a, it's an... Um, it's an ongoing it's, process, no, Andy. For idea. me, you know, it's part of you know, it's a, it's a dynamic, it's a it's a movement, it's a um, you know, the the, the 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 big thing about Hillsborough, the, the big difference from I think from uh, people who, whose family uh, members have been killed and and survivors who, who who weren't connected in in that kind of way is that um, it, it, being a be, being a survivor is part of a continuing experience, it's a continuing part of life. You know what I mean? They're, they're deep, running on the speed and the impact of things and, and, and stuff like that. Whereas those who, whose family members have been bereaved, there's a full stop there for that person. You know what I mean? So whenever they think of that person, whoever it is that relates to them, and even people who had friends and, you know, who, who actually knew and, 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 you know, lived their life with the people who were killed, you know, there's a full stop there. But, you know, whenever the word Hillsborough is used, that person comes to mind for them. Yeah. If you're a survivor, that's not necessarily so. That That is so for a lot of survivors. But uh, I think the essence of the experience is such that, you you know, it's a continuation. This thing has happened in the middle of... Well, it is the middle of my life now, you know. Um, uh, and, and, and and then, you know, when it's continued on, there are repercussions from it. Yeah, yeah so this thing's you know, happens in the middle of your life, you know, and, and, and life does go on, you know. It's a continuing experience, you know, whatever the, you know, depths you've been to or the highs you go to, you know, it's part of a continuing experience. And, and you know, the, the, the essence of the troubles with, with Hillsborough boils down to what they call existential anxiety. And, and that's something that, you know, can come to you in any day of the week. Um, we'll bring that to a close on that one. Um, I mean, it just more because th- th- I felt like a natural ending point and also with things still rumbling on in the background, we can't, we've got to be, uh, yeah, we've yeah. got to be careful about okay. about what we say on that. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, yeah. So a footnote to Marks and Liverpool's history, The uh, and I didn't know this until you told me just before the show, I just knew of the... the, the the piece, yeah. 
the last day of the cop. I like that. <laughs> That's brilliant. You know, to describe it as a piece. You know, the uh, I'll let yeah. you go with it. The uh, yeah. the last day yeah, of the, the cop. You, you, you decided to yeah. Uh, commemorate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We commemorated it with the the, the Shankly banner. You know, um, we made it in Kirkdale Community Centre, the Gordon, on on Stanley Road, and we used all the space available, the full size of the hall, to make it happen. Uh, David Jake's done two pictures of Shankly and between the two pictures of Shankly are a torrent of trophies. That's the idea. It's done. It's meant to look like a picture on the wall of a house. I'm just looking at the picture there of Fowler and McManaman. You know, it's a bit like that, you know, that it, it, it's a it's a picture on the wall of a house, you know. Uh, so it, it's a white middle, 10 foot high and 40 foot wide, 45 foot wide, um, with a border of red. Uh, which is five foot wide, um, you know, on top, bottom and, and, and sides. And the script, the original script says, all around the ground, the cop spirit survives. Now, all around the ground is written in a wave, deliberately to, you know, um, suggest movement and that like. And the bottom script, the cop spirit survives, is written in a straight line on one piece and was always meant to be interchangeable. So in that moment, it was saying, you know, the the the, the way of the old cop was carrying on uh, elsewhere in the ground and everyone had to, you know, make an effort to pull their thing out to keep that going. And that now, I mean, to be fair, it's, it's, it's made me feel incredibly old, <laughs> yeah. given that... Um, yeah. South, yeah, it's 25 years old. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it's remarkable when you think of that. I, I laugh to myself, I'm making a couple of banners at the moment. I made one just before the season started, and I've made a, a, another one. And I, I've developed a product that I need to um, trademark called a bath. A bath? A, yeah, a bath. Yeah, it's a cross between a banner and a scarf. Okay. <laughs> so um, it's made with such material that, you know, you can fold it up that much and wrap it around your neck at the end, you know, when just you're not sure displaying you, it. Just make sure you get yeah. the copyright sources, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, with yeah, everything going yeah. on at the minute. Yeah, but they're made for, they, they, there's two of them uh, that, that are particularly that, you know, it's a proper effort to make a banner that someone can display and is big enough to be seen in a, big stadium and that but also just wrap it around the neck to look after it rather than having to carry a bag or you know send, try send. and find it in a pocket so one of them one of them says um, them unbearable reds it's six metres long by 60 centimetres wide and the one that I'm just doing now I've just passed on to the colourist to put uh, some more paint on it is uh, it says continental kingship <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like European royalty, isn't yeah. it? You know, and and these both of these lads are like you know around the twenty years of age mark, and and and, and both of them, you know, saying, "When do you want pain? You know, I get paid." And I'm saying to myself, "You know what? Here's kids here just out of school and that, like saving up the first wages that they've earned to get me to to pay me to make them a banner." And How you know, you, that's a real honour, isn't it? How do you? What What are your thoughts on because? You're a different generation to me, and I'm a different generation to the, the, this young lad. And there seems to be this over the last couple of years, this massive resurgence back towards the the culture that we we want yeah, to celebrate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah it, it kind it, of went yeah. away for a bit. Do you know what I mean? And the thing for me is they're the, 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 the doing it in a manner of their own selves. Of course, I worry for the future. You know, they're burning it out. You know what? what but you know, they, they always come up with new stuff. That you know, whether it's you know uh, the songs. I mean, the songs are just absolutely amazing, aren't they? You know, them ones. Uh, and I always think of we ate Nottingham Forest. You know, we been to. I always think of we ain't Nottingham Forest. You know, it, it's brilliant. They, they find their own way. One young lad said to me, I, I know his dad fairly well, and um, his dad's a survivor, a cracking lad, Richie. Uh, and this lad said to me, oh, it's a bit nothing, you know, getting them bands on in the concourse and all that, taking away from the thing. I said, no, lads, it's a, here and now it is. But they'll learn to, you know, uh, make the most of it. And they are getting better, the performers. I see them, you know, there and in the thing. The actual performers are getting better. The snag is that the people who are coming to match... Uh, um, getting the phone out rather than living the moment, you know what I mean? I say, it's a live match, live it, you know. Uh, but rather than living the moments, they're living the memory in the moment. Yeah. So they're already making the the, 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 the past tense 
uh, sense of being. You know, they're not living in the moment. Yeah. You know, so uh, and and that's it. But that's part of the change of the whole game, isn't it? You know, and the whole game now is uh, is basically a, a live television show, isn't it? That's that that's the way that it is. And and the people who come to match, you come a lot of people come to match now are coming to watch a live television show. You know, whereas for us, it's part of life. It's a different kettle of fish altogether. No, it is, and I, and I think to, to be fair, I mean, listen, I, I mean, you both know the game's changed beyond recognition in some quarters but I still but I still take solace and it isn't just us there's other clubs who would do this who remain true to the values where that yeah, but them values will, will never there. go away. You you know they'll never go away. All the, all this other stuff is like coping on it. You know that's still the core. That core will still be. You know, doing what they've always it might done change, in different the, ways. The ethos, I mean, the, the ethos yeah, is the if same. If you've been down and seen that garden at Old Chelsea, well, honest to God, mate, that, that's just fantastic. That to see the way that they and a lot of them are people who are, are coming, you know, for the weekend and take strippers. You know what I mean? I get them on my bush, and you know what? I haven't met a bad one yet. Well, I mean, I was going to lead back to that all of this stuff, and there's hours more tales of wisdom. <laughs> it's a series, isn't it, lads? There you go. Keep bringing them back. So yeah, yeah no. So that's soccer in the city. It's, is it every yeah. home game now, or sorry, soccer in the city? Is it every home game now? Every or? home game, uh, but the kickoff, not the early kickoffs. Uh, it starts five and a half hours before kickoff, so it has to be like a three o'clock kickoff to be able to make it a pre-match. Um, and that's the best, not just because, you know, we've got the time to do it properly and both of us there. Damien Cavanagh is my glamorous assistant. Uh, friend and then the, the words of war the in there, you Damien, know, you're yeah. putting an application mm. in for stuff like, just they, they, they go through your spell check like, because uh, glamorous and gormless are, you know, quite close. Yeah. Well, also correct and all that. <laughs> uh, just to read the flyer, soccer, city, soccer in the City Tour includes some walking, commentary is bilingual, English and scouts and English. Yeah, it's trilingual now. Trilingual? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's trilingual now. I'll do it now. Now, now I'll do it in uh, English, Scouts and gibberish. And gibberish? Well, yeah. there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, so www.soccerinthecity.co.uk or you can email Peter at peter at soccerinthecity.co.uk. Um, yeah, fantastic, Pete. Thanks for coming in. And, uh, Thanks for having me. Best of luck. Cheers, John. In the spirit of every day being a school day, some Liverpool supporters, myself included, have recently discovered the difference between the African Cup of Nations and the African Nations Championship. And the African Nations Championship is open. John T. Mark is joining me from The Citizen to discuss it. It's open only to players who play in their national league. So that's right, isn't it, John T., that effectively there's an Africa-wide competition, but only players who play in their national leagues are eligible to, to be picked in the squads. Yeah, I mean, it started about, I think there's been six of them. So, um, so far, six chans, as we call it, African Nations Championship is the, is the, yeah, is, is what it is. And it's, it's only, you're right. It's only for T, for the players from clubs in the countries that they represent. So, yeah. So, for example, Senegal would have players only playing in the Senegal leagues. Uh, it was a way, I think, of generating a little bit more income through sponsors. I'm not sure how much income it does generate for the Confederation of African Football. The African Nations Cup is obviously far more lucrative for them, given that it has all the star names in it. But yes, any Liverpool fans worried about losing uh, Sadio Mane uh, or Mohamed Salah don't, need not worry. They won't be going to that. They're not going to this, but also... I think this takes up two international breaks, doesn't it? Is it the same coaches or is it different coaches? Is it treated like a completely different competition or do different different countries treat it differently? Yeah, different countries treat it differently. Some countries will send the same coach, um, but a lot of, say, the, the more... The bigger footballing nations in Africa would maybe send an under-23 team. They may send a... Uh, you know, they may send a youth team. They may send... Uh, and they may send a different coach, so it's not. It's definitely not treated as 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 a top tier competition by a lot of federations. I would say the most, most of them actually do treat it as as a, a very much a second tier. Uh, and just to sort of stress that, I mean, Egypt didn't even enter. So <laughs> I think confederations have a choice of whether they enter or not. And Egypt didn't enter this one. That's happening in Ethiopia next year. So. So what? They, uh, so what's happening yeah. now is the qualification phase for it, isn't it? So it's it's yeah. so it isn't as though when we get there next summer either. You know, again from a very Liverpool centric point of view, which is the wrong point of view, but it's the one we'll start with. Mo Salah yeah. will not be playing in this next summer. He'll have no summer competition next summer. 
Yeah, no, there's no way Mo Salah will be playing. There's no way Mohamed Sane. In fact, there's no way any of Liverpool's African players will be playing. Naby Keita or anyone. And it actually runs... From what I can see, it's running from January to February anyway. It's like running from January to February 2020 in Cameroon. But I may be mistaken because they keep mixing up the times that they're running the competition. So it's actually running in season. I don't even know if it's running over the summer. Um, yeah. Um, but the information I have says January to February 2020, but they, they it, may have moved it. It's odd, isn't it, though, for this? They do appear to therefore. So, for in instance, Cameroon. Egypt haven't got a game. It's odd, isn't it, that they do appear yep. to... to Basically, is this some sort of sort of reference back to the summer's exertions that all these African nations do get this first international break off? I mean, it does strike me that, you know, the European Federation wouldn't be this kind. Yeah, I don't know if it's because they maybe it's probably because they moved the Afghan to June, July for the first time. Uh, and so, yeah, these nations have decided to take a break. Uh, I, I, previously, I, most of the African nations would have played in September, October. Also, the qualification for the 2021 Africa Cup of Nations, which is the AFCON, which is the big competition, um, which is set to take place in Cameroon in June 2021, that only starts in November. So there is an opportunity for teams, if they want to have a bit of a break, to have it now in September and then perhaps play a friendly in the October date or, or not at all. But I think most, most countries think would organize, um, friendlies in October. South Africa, interestingly, have just had two friendlies canceled. So they're not playing. <laughs> and, well, and Egypt have had, Egypt have had a, haven't got any game in October either. Their next mm. game currently mm. that's in the calendar, at least is in November. Yeah. When you mentioned okay. before South Africa, I remember when we talked during the, uh, during the, the cup of nations. And one of the things that, mm came out of it was you you know south africa was predominantly uh homegrown Are south africa one mm. of the nations that would send the 23s or should we basically look at this if we do want to keep an eye on it from afar that south africa will probably be the uh be the favorites no i mean look south africa are already out of this competition they were Amazing. knocked out by Les- <laughs> yeah. i'm, I'm learning everything as i'm going <laughs> no it's fine they were knocked out by lesotho um basically and um so and they definitely didn't field a full strength team. Uh, I think they may have sent the under twenty threes and lost because also South Africa. Um, I think that is what they did because South Africa are preparing, are trying to qualify for the twenty twenty Olympics. Yeah. Um, and they they're playing Zimbabwe this weekend in a qualifier, and they were they were looking for preparation matches. So I think in July, yeah, it was the t- it was the end of July. I'm pretty sure they used the under-23 team because they are trying to qualify for the Olympics and they wanted to give them some preparation matches. Um, but I, I'm not 100% sure. It may have also just been another team because they were also playing in another Southern African tournament, which is the Kasafa Cup, which they did definitely send the Olympic team to. So it's 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 a tournament that really... Uh, some people would say it's completely pointless. Other people would say, well, it gives an opportunity for... Uh, players who would not ordinarily get to play for their country to play for their country. I mean, that's, you know, I guess if you're a young guy and you're playing in your local league and you you probably think, especially for these uh, countries where most of their players play in Europe, like a Senegal or an Algeria yeah. or, a, you know, teams like that. I think for them, it's a real opportunity to represent their country. And, and, and so that is... Certainly an incentive incentive for it, but it is a bit. It has it does have a bit of a Mickey Mouse status. In yeah, it, yeah. I was going to ask Africa, you: Is there yeah. any any sort of jiggery pokery? So, if like Nigeria have got a good player who plays for Hearts, do they try to get him mm. back on loan or anything like that, or is it is it treated in that sort of Mickey Mouse vein? Yeah, I don't think anybody cares enough to to do something like that. Afcon is the one that everybody wants to win, and in terms of African content, African competitions. So I don't think that anybody really cares enough to to do something like that. So no, uh, um, it's 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 quite good for countries I think who who do have like you mentioned most of their actual senior team playing, yeah, in uh, in the, in their local leagues and then they can use it as a sort of preparation and a and a, and a team building exercise and, and if they win it, you know, all well and good and it does it certainly I think for the smaller nations I know Libya won it. Um, once and and some of the smaller nations sometimes do win it and it's more for them I think it is perhaps a bit more prestigious because obviously if you're a country like Libya you with all due respect to Libya you're not going to have much of a chance of ever winning the Afghan um, again Um, but 
you know, you can win this. And then it gives you some sort of prestige. So I think for, for perhaps for the smaller nations, I mean, even for Lesotho, it's a big, it was a big thing for them to knock South Africa out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, for those kinds of countries, I think it's, 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 it, they take it a bit more seriously than the, than the more prestigious nations um, who, who perhaps won't take it seriously at all. Going back to the Cup of Nations, as I've got you back on, because I didn't mm. speak to you since then, in the end, Algeria mm. won the thing. Is there mm-hmm. a, you know, the last, the, the, it was very, very tense, those final rounds. I think it's uh, Ivory yeah. Coast and Algeria goes to penalties, and then I think Algeria yeah. win every game by only one goal at that phase. It it becomes, yeah. it became a really, really tight tournament, didn't it? It seemed to me that a lot of these sides, maybe from the point at which Egypt go out, they all seem to play as though they felt there was a great deal to lose. I think we see that sometimes in all in championship football everywhere, but it seemed to really grip the tournament from what I saw. Yeah, I think you did see that. And I think that, you know, there were a lot of very tight games, as you say, Algeria. Algeria played quite an aggressive, sort of quite defensive game with a quite a defensive game plan. Even in the group stages, they beat Senegal 1-0 and then they beat them again in the final. But, um, you know, it was it was a very sort of tight competition in that sense, and it does get a bit like that in the later stages of the competition. Um, certainly, Nigeria also, um, you know, they they were a bit cagey even against South Africa in the quarterfinals, and and only just managed to get past South Africa. And there was certainly a uh, yeah a certain it was a little bit. Uh, I mean, it was it was interesting, but it wasn't yeah, it wasn't thrilling. You could say. I mean, the only thing that made it thrilling, perhaps, was the kind of you know the fact that it went to extra time and penalties. Yeah, just on 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 Senegal within this, because obviously you know we've got the Liverpool connection with Sadio Mane. Mm-hmm. It seemed to me mm-hmm. watching as though. Senegal's games all got really, really tight, even though I think, and by all means disagree with me, they look to have the most talented squad. Is that something that sort of is getting looked at? You know, because a lot of these tournaments, it's the, everyone wants to win the African Cup of Nations, but there is still the feeling that there is going to be an African side that's going to get to the last four or the final of the World Cup at some point. Is there a desire maybe mm. for some, to find a way to get some of these sides to play slightly more expansively? Yeah, I mean, I think we've lost a bit of that, and I think it has. It's de- it's definitely. I mean, if you look at the Cameroon side, for example, that played in the 1990 World Cup with Roger Miller, and um, you know the one that really nearly beat England, and yeah. and the um, that played, side played with a lot of flair, and I think that has been missing. And then a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of kind of trying to adapt to more European style tactics uh, in terms of you know maybe be playing it a bit more cagey than other Af- than African teams might. And I do think there's room for some of the flair to come through a bit more, especially with the talent. I mean, just Liverpool's front two of Mane and Salah. I mean, then you've got Nicolas Pepe um, at Arsenal, you've, who 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 it was it was very good for the Ivory Coast at the Afcon. Um, and there's just so much talent that you'd like to see it come to the fore a bit a bit more. Um, I do think that obviously Egypt were a big disappointment getting knocked out in the last 16, but yeah, Senegal um, probably did have the strongest squad although Algeria had a very strong team as well um mm. Riyad Mahrez another example of attacking talent that, that perhaps you know that did did ultimately I think he scored the winning free kick against Nigeria but that did ultimately um come through but you know maybe not enough maybe not enough and we I would certainly like to see more of that especially at a world cup like you say where you know maybe playing the European way against European teams is not really going to help um, and African teams need to find another way to, to uh, <clears throat> excuse me, to win to to get to the semi-final. I mean, Ghana came so close, of course, in 2010 when uh, uh, Samoa Gian hit the crossbar with a penalty. Um, yeah, but in South Africa, but you know they've come close, but not not quite yet. Got to the semis. But it would be nice to see an African team make it, and certainly Senegal. I mean, Koulibaly at the back. Yeah, I think they have got the, certainly the strongest spine. They've got the Ajax. Amsterdam goalkeeper Sadio up front, Kuyate in the midfield. They've certainly got of the African teams are probably the strongest squad, but yeah, they haven't. They're not quite. They haven't quite managed to show their full. I don't think their full colours yet. Okay, excellent stuff indeed. Thank you very much to Jonty. Uh, let's get back over and on with the show. Thanks to Andy, Peter, and Jonty. Uh, back now with Kiva, Damien, and Adam uh, to talk about the season so far and the nature of the start. And Kiva, it's twelve points out of twelve. It's the Super Cup um, victory as well, albeit on penalty kicks. Not that we care about that now, uh, and even we don't care about extra time anymore because they won the game afterwards. It is, you know, the manager 
has a plan uh, to start the season and him and his team will be uh, absolutely delighted. It doesn't get it could not have got better than the way in which it's gone for Liverpool with the exception of the injury to the goalkeeper. Yeah, I think being without our number one and who is the world's number one was, you know, a little bit of a blow, but we've had Adrian who's just stepped in and stepped up. Obviously there's been a couple of mistakes he's made, but I don't think that matters. Obviously recorded a clean sheet against Burnley, which is Always, I think, a difficult place to go. Ruffles your feathers a little bit, and you saw that in the opening, I think, 20 minutes. But we managed to sort of get through and win the game. We've got this, like, well, a, a winning mentality now where it doesn't really... no Nobody seems to affect this team because they're so determined to win. And we never really used to have that. It was kind of like teams like Hull had beat us, like 3-0 or whatever that was, and Swansea. And, you know, this is not long ago when these kinds of things were happening. But now it's just like... You know, Liverpool will go through them phases of the game if they're not in complete control, which is most most of the time we are, um, and and dominate games. And you know, we've won four out of four. What more could you ask for? Obviously, we've conceded. I think is three goals. Which, conceded three know, of the games. Yeah, that doesn't really. Obviously, the Southampton one was a bit closer and could you know maybe ended in a draw in the end, but it never. And we go. And we just keep moving on. I feel like the, the players, what they've learned from last year and looking at Man City is you've just got to take the win and it doesn't matter how it comes. You don't have to do these, you know, flashy 4-0, 5-0 games. You've just got to win and play, you know, the game that they're getting taught week in, week out to play. And they've been doing that. And it feels like we're in a stronger position. Obviously, we are, but we started off great last season, the same. Yep. But this time it just feels different because we've got all that that knowledge of like what it takes and the fine margins and obviously like City have dropped two points. So, you know, we've got that already and it feels like a title race because Chelsea have dropped points, Man United have dropped points, Arsenal, Tottenham, they're all already out of it and we feel like, you know, it's just go again. Well, I think there's two things in, in what Kiva said there, Damien. First is the Vada graft with the possible exception of Norwich where it does yeah. get handed the to him a bit first 30 minutes. Mm. But... Apart from that, they have had to graft. Nothing has been handed to them. But the other thing is evidence of the gulf. And it's not just the points. Sometimes sides can go play four games, pick up five points, be desperately unlucky. Yeah. The evidence of your eyes, the evidence of the stats, the evidence of, of the points as well is the gulf is has never been bigger. You said before, could be the best Liverpool side you've ever seen. It's as I good, think it's, yeah. as good as any I've seen. I think it's the biggest gulf I've seen between Liverpool and the vast majority of the league since 88. That's the size of the gulf between Liverpool and everyone yeah. else. It's absolutely enormous and we've already seen it from the first four games. Yeah, we have, haven't we? I mean, it's difficult to August. I think, you know, they get players back at all different times and that's the same for everybody. All kinds of fitness levels, fitting them in and whatever have you. So I think that's just... Um, a question of getting the fitness levels up and making sure that the players are educated and make sure everyone's available and on call. Then to ask for it and say, well, let's get to the international break and let's get 12 points on the board. That's a big ask. Arlo, I'm going to include the second half of the Shield as well here because we were absolutely nails in that as well. And I don't mind yep. going to a penalty shootout in the Shield. That'll do me job done there. You know, gave a lot of people a lot of confidence. Man City were there and we, we went toe-to-toe and could have gone the other way. So it's a great start. To, um, going to Southampton on the back of Istanbul, extra time and all that. Everyone's sort of sharp and take a breath. That's going to be hard. You're going to Burnley away. Ooh, that's going to be hard. We went there and just bossed them. Talking about tactical flexibility earlier. That was, you know, if you look at what we did against Arsenal and we smashed them one way and then we went to Burnley and smashed, dominated them, you know, kept, absolutely kept them at arm's length. You know, the forward gets a cob on wants to start fighting everybody so they have to sub them. <laughs> you know, and that's the level that we reduced. You know, I've got full credit to Burnley, you know, for what they do and how they do it. But, you know, these fixtures would, deem, would be deemed awkward. They are awkward, but we've dealt with them so efficiently and the 12 points that we've got is all we could have asked for. And with regard to evidence of the gulf, yeah, I think it is. I think with Liverpool and Man City, you know, I think a lot of pe- teams uh, gave up against Man City and they, uh, Man City earned that over seasons by saying, you know, my frightening teams. And I think that's going to start to become some, a weapon that we've got to, I think people will fold and say, we'll take it and be 2 nil here and we won't come out for the second half. I think that's going to happen for us as well. And that is evidence of the gulf too. Um it's it, Damien mentions their different fitness levels. You know, everyone's coming back at different times. 
And then he did it this last season, just plays the same lads every week, Adam. And I think it's really, you know, there is an oddity of this, which is that pre-season, oh, Brewster looks lively. I tell you what, I quite like the look of, and you go through the list here, Larucci, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and we might see a few of these footballers. Last last pre-season, Shaqiri scores the overhead kick against Man United, and we basically don't see him again until he comes on. Last 10 against Leicester to win throws. There is is something where I think, you know, we may well, we're obviously going to get to see more and more players, but it is a strange little oddity. We go from seeing practically anyone who's ever the ball to Liverpool and then he distills it down into 14 of them he said just before the Burnley match didn't he now is not the time to make changes which the implication being that there will be a right time to make changes but now is not it and I think it's a little bit it's almost a little bit like when um, when Fabinho wasn't really played much at the start of last season that he kind of just he wanted to get the points on the board and then start to worry about bringing lads in and using different people and, and mixing it up a little bit depending on fitness I think we'll start to see it now, Probably, if not after this international break, then maybe after the next one. I think we'll start to see it more so that people aren't cold when it comes to, uh, well, you know, no jokes uh, in December. See what um, you did there. We'll be, <laughs> no, I didn't mean that, but you know what I mean. Like People aren't coming in sort of without having any game time to them. I think we'll start to see it a little bit more and more and more now as, as the games go on. Um, but it's also, he has been taking players off you know, obviously, the the whole reason that Mane had the spat, you know, the the thing the other the other day with Salah was he he, he was off. That's why we saw it because he went onto the bench and threw a hissy fit basically. And Firmino was there as well, so he's taking people off when the game's won now, which is sort of what everybody was crying for Rodgers to do in thirteen fourteen, and he never did. He, he just ran them into the ground. We're we're starting to use the subs a little bit more, just a little bit more cleverly now. And I think he'll he'll start to, especially the midfield, where he's got an abundance of options. I think defence it's a little bit trickier for him, um, but I think in, in midfield he'll start to rotate them more. And then probably we will see Brewster from December onwards. We'll see him coming for the end of games and maybe the cup matches to get them all that sort of thing. So yeah, that's where we're at. I think um, the one. Selection headache. Go back to you actually on it, Adam. Insofar as he's had a selection headache, and I'm sure he doesn't see it as a selection headache, but I think we all expected to a degree Gomez would start the season as first choice. Maybe not all expected it, but a fair few of us, and then he was. And he ends this run of games not looking like first choice. Mm. Uh, That's not to say he's not going to have a good season or anything like that. But everywhere else there has been a level of stability. I think, you know, you could have written down what his first 11 was uh, for a variety of reasons. I think he's made that relatively plain. And that's not to say that first 11 will remain the case either, but for this run. But it does look as though there has been a bit of that Matip and Gomez more than possibly anyone else in the, on the team have been playing for a place, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I do. And I think that it's been it, it's been totally fair what he's done in, in the way of meritocracy because I think Matip absolutely earned his place and he's he's he is... There have been games this season where, you know, some people might not like to admit it, but he's played better than Van Dijk. He's been the better defender. He's been the more stable one. That's not to say that he hasn't got running off into midfield and giving the ball away one or, you know, one or two times a match, but it, it, he's just been looking a lot more solid at the back. And Gomez, in fairness, didn't. When he when he played, he didn't look all that great. He did look a little bit shaky. Got into it a bit more, but he, he did look a bit shaky to begin with. So it's a it's a um yeah, a meritocracy type thing at the moment with them two. And again, I think he probably thinks Gomez is his long term partner, but as long as he keeps getting the performances automatic, why drop him? Spot on. Agree and <coughs> agree with that. And for me, you know, Gomez is the future of Liverpool, he's gonna pay four hundred games for us, all things being equal. Um He's going to be a very strong, very quick, very influential centre-back, I think. But you play the men in form. I don't want them in three points for next season. We need them now. Matip's playing there. And you know, and another subplot might be, well, we're looking at renewing his contract. And the first chance we get to leave him out, we do so. Mm-hmm. Is he going to sign? And you're looking at depth. And it, it, the meritocracy and giving people a chance. I mean, OK, he's kept his 11 tight, hasn't he? He wants to get the points on the ball because he knows there's no margin for that. We can't say, oh, tell you what, we'll start the season in September when we're all fit. We'll try and catch Man City up then. Now, I've mentioned Man City a few times here because that is that is the nature of where we're at. This is what we all want. If we're going to win one of the two big cups, and I, don't, I never mind which one it is. I'll, you know, I'm, I'm not fussy. But we're gonna have to, yeah, yeah. We're gonna have, we're gonna have to get past them to do it. Um, so, yeah, if it, you know, if it's keeping them all on the toes, you know, things like having, you know, Matt up there, you know, would you trust Matt for the whole season without the, you know, without Gomez right behind him? And then you think Gomez, well, he's young enough to think, well, okay, me time will come, and his time will come, you know. So, um, 
I'm happy with the way it's, it's gone from the start there. Mm. Especially as other Premier League teams have this problem up front and they're playing a different striker every week, trying to work things out. Where we've got this problem maybe in the midfield, like, you know, who we're going to play and that one centre-back position. You know, we, we could have it all over the pitch, but there's there's only a few sort of chances for players to get in. Well, I mean, Kiva on this... This is where he's even sort of limited his midfield options in a sense through this through this little run. You know, he, he starts Oxley Chamberlain at Southampton, but apart from that, it's been three from the four. Uh, that's very similar to last season, and it's a repeat of last season. You get the impression you sat down with his with his staff after the end of the season and gone and gone all right, ninety seven points, won that. Let's talk about what's worked. Lots of things. Let's talk about what maybe did could we need to improve on. Okay, but you get the impression that there's been an element of right what worked last season, we do it again this season. That's the yeah. way in which we're going to be. Yeah, and that's obviously why, going back to Matip, he got in the team because that was working most recently where obviously Joe Gomez got injured at Burnley last season and then Matip just comes out and has this remarkable end to the season. So you've got to keep moving forward with the players who are most likely to win your games and have most recently won your games. So obviously with the midfield, that just comes under that. Um, and I, I just think that... You're not gonna re like. I feel like last season it was more of a question about the midfield, but this season it doesn't feel like there's gonna be that sort of conundrum of who to play because last season sort of wrote this season's script in a in a small way. Hey, and we're gonna learn from that as well, Damien and supporters. We're not gonna be saying when's he gonna find his best eleven in midfield because we now know he's gonna chop and change. He's gonna he's gonna pick who's yep. fit, and that's where when Adam referred right the way at the start of this with the manager saying I may well have, you know, the time for change is, isn't now. The implication is it is soon. That is what we can expect to see from sort of September onwards, not least because it's what we saw from September onwards last season. Indeed, yeah. And if you go back to the players who were um, being selected, you know, for this, um, you know, being in the squad and the seven best players that we've got and who was left out, well, the ones we've we've spoken about are all the guaranteed ones. And then we've got one position next to Virgil van Dijk. So that's up, that's, that's up for rotation. And then the midfielders are up for rotation. Yeah. And it's... Certainly, the crowd at Anfield is an educated crowd and being a disappointed crowd before Jürgen turns up. And it's certainly, you know, going with the journey, isn't it? You know, we're on an upward trajectory. You can see a logic to it. You can see a pattern to it. You can see a theme. You can see, you know, that what Jürgen's trying to achieve is coming to pass. And this rotation of players, you know, I, quite frankly, I, you know, I get to Anfield on a match day now and I'm kind of not bothered which, which, of, the, which of the three midfielders is he going to use because I trust them. And as long as I can see someone there who will recognise, yeah, he'll do a number six against this team today, the other two will do the business, whatever it is. You know, so it, I think we're, we're certainly used to it now and at first I think people would doubt it, but it, it's worked so much and the evidence is there. And it's such an attractive team, such an energetic team and, you know, against anybody, we're just, we're just playing teams off the park, aren't we? He's uh, last little thing, Adam. Is you get the impression he plans constantly, and that is that's what we're going to see through the season. And you know, it's imp- important to sort of to to I'd say to knock that now because we can see it. We saw it. It's got him the twelve points. It's got the super cup, etc., etc. He's we like to think of him, and I think it's been said a couple of times, and I think it's an important thing for Liverpool supporters at least to say it's not hugs. Hugs help. Uh, it's not motivation. Motivation helps. It's not fitness. Fitness helps. But what it is is a manager who's created a strategy that he feels works executing it now for the second consecutive season I'm not expecting to see things be particularly different no but I think what you've talked about about the hugs and the motivation is is part of that strategy oh, yeah. in so much as it, it it it's almost like a magician's trick where people are saying oh you know he's just he's just about hugs and he talks about how important you know uh Kraviats is and how important uh what's his name Buvac was before he left you know the any anytime anybody's it's much like what he is with the team anytime somebody's singled out or he's given any praise he always deflects it to somebody else which gives the the you know the uneducated if you like the impression that it's just fluke that he's somehow managed to win you know the Bundesliga however twice was it with them Dortmund and mm. then he's won you know got to reach two Champions League finals with Liverpool and won one of them and all that it's oh it's well it's just just because of how good Buvac was or how good Kravitz was and all that because it's very very deliberate everything he does is very deliberate I think and his his genius if you want to use that phrase is making the deliberate look like a disheveled fluke and that that's what he's brilliant at and the players know exactly what the what their jobs are but 
but on the pitch it can look like chaos. Exactly what Kiva was saying before with you know Mane. Oh, he, he looks like the sort of player who's just spontaneous and things, but he knows exactly what he's doing and making it look spontaneous is part of the the brilliance of what of, of how teams get bamboozled by us. Excellent stuff. Thank you very much to Adam, to Damien, and to Kiva, everyone else who's contributed to the show this week. It's been the weekender. Enjoy your weekend off. Go and see Liverpool ladies if you fancy it. If not, there'll be a game near if you want to get stuck into that sort of thing. Or just take it easy. Relax, put your feet up, because know that you're watching the best team in the world. Sports Social Podcast Network.